Let's please read together from uh, Psalms number 27, and it's page 460 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Thank you very much, Raymond, for reading that psalm, which is one of my favourites. So uh, I was uh, delighted to be able to get to speak on it um, this Sunday. Thank you for coming out and braving the uh, storm, Kira. Uh, the casualties in my household were three slain wheelie bins uh, that I woke up to this morning that were lying very much dead on my grass. Now, thankfully, due to a combination of planning, uh, incompetence and laziness, I hadn't actually got anything in the bins. So next door neighbour's Moggy was spared a playground that she, she only tries to get at when she can. So, uh, Raymond just read Psalm 27, and really, Psalm 27 is, is pretty straightforward in its structure. Um, it begins with a statement of confidence in the Lord, and then moves to seeking the Lord. And the next section becomes even more intense in its seeking of the Lord, before finally coming through it all, the psalmist has confidence. So the structure is pretty straightforward. But I think... In this psalm, there is so much that we can learn about our priorities, about choosing what is best from what is good, and about how we face anxiety and difficulty, especially as Christians. Now, if you remember Psalm 25, David's main concern was with the sin and guilt, and in those personal enemies that are against him. 
But now these enemies have multiplied. If you've got the text in front of you, he talks about in verse 3, an army encamping against him, war rising against him. This is not just the individuals that are pursuing David, or David as a, almost like a guerrilla uh, operative, uh, hiding in caves and in desert hiding places. This is David as ruler of the kingdom, a mature David, looking back and finding that while he's comfortable in that way, he is facing even more severe threats. And so the David who wrote as a shepherd boy and probably penned the beginnings of Psalm 23, I think as a shepherd boy about uh, the Lord being a shepherd, about guiding him in dark places, leading him in paths of righteousness as a, as a young boy, I think David can now see how the Lord is his light and salvation, opening up all those dark places in his life. When David is prosperous and comfortable, as maybe we can be Christians and facing threats, he needs the same Lord and help that he had when he was a young believer, when he was a young person wrestling with a lion rather than armies and wars against him. So David does have confidence. And he says, if these things are so, if the Lord is my light and salvation, how can I be afraid? Who can be against me? When evildoers assail him to eat up his flesh, adversaries and foes, what happens is the fact that it goes back on them. They're the ones that stumble and fall. And we'll look a bit later on about that and what happens whenever they don't stumble and fall, when things don't change, when things maybe get worse. So David is confident at the start of this psalm. But he moves beyond this confidence to express a real desire to seek the Lord. He has one, one request from the Lord, and that is for this permanent dwelling with God. The seeking that he talks about, the asking after, it's not just a kind of popping into the temple, you know, for an answer to a question, accessing Google for how do I do this. It is something much more intentional and ongoing. It's like somebody who is seeking truth, is seeking to know something or seeking to become. It's an attention to being with a person, to being in a place or situation where you learn, where you change and where your life has an effect or has an effect on your life. Contrast in Psalm 4 with those who seek lies and idols, whose every thought and intention is devoted to those things. For David, every thought and attention is consumed by dwelling with the Lord. So in these three verses then, or four, uh, verses 4 to 6, David uses five different ideas or, or metaphors about God's dwelling place. He talks about God's house, God's temple, God's shelter, God's tent, and God's rock. So house, temple, shelter, tent, and rock. These things express different characters of this desire that David has. He would have been familiar with the Ark of God's Covenant. This was this box, wooden box overlaid with gold in which God had placed the Ten Commandments and a few other bits and bobs. And it was a visible sign to the Israelites of God's presence amongst them. Um, Moses had built it. Uh, it was a very beautiful thing. Um, it had got uh, stolen a few times by the Philistines and was moving uh, around the place. But David brings the Ark, this visible sign of God's presence and dwelling, back to Jerusalem and, and puts it in a tent that he has made. David was familiar with the plan for the, if you like, the tent or the tabernacle around which, um, or in which this uh, box was placed. 
But this wasn't in Jerusalem at this stage. And David would have been very familiar with what these things that made up uh, this tabernacle would have talked about about the Lord. And there's a couple of things here. If you were at our tabernacle series, and certainly I'd advise you to uh, look up on the website, this was the tabernacle, a mobile tent which had to be uh, set up and taken down every time Israel was moving in the wilderness uh, under Moses. And in the main bit of the tabernacle, there were a couple of things like lampstands and tables of bread, which all talked to the Israelites, and especially those priests that went in there to minister, about how they needed to put God as the centre of their life, to feed on him, to see through his word that they had light, there was a candlestick. And these things all pointed to how the Lord was totally sufficient to meet the Israelites' needs. Wandering in the desert with really little food or little water, they had to rely completely on God. This uh, was a very beautiful structure. It was made in silver and gold and bronze. There was uh, some very fine artistry. This were the Leonardo da Vinci's of the time who were able to craft and mould and sew and patch and stitch and build things together that made God's dwelling place to those looking outside and those priests within beautiful, something that was desirable, precious, rare, that demanded attention. So David wants to go in, dwell in the house of the Lord, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What do you think when you hear the word beauty? For me, beauty is found in all sorts of places. Maybe we like a a beautiful piece of music in my world, uh, or or a meal, uh, some music, literature. But people also find beauty in things that are um, from nature, things that are almost accidental, things that uh, maybe have a history or that mean something to them. A well-ordered household, a gift that was given, something that is precious. And what you do when you find something beautiful is that it's not so much an end in itself, but you admire it for what it is, the pleasure it can bring you. And it doesn't run out. It will hopefully still be beautiful 5, 10, 50 or 100 years from now. This is why we preserve great works of art and sculpture, because they are beautiful. It's an appreciation of the thing looked at. And beauty, I believe as a Christian, is is defined by God. The Lord Jesus told an example of how uh, King David's son Solomon, even when he was at the peak of his riches and his fame, even his kingly robes didn't compare a patch to a lily of the field, a flower that was here today and gone after a few weeks just destroyed even Solomon in all his glory couldn't compare to that and I believe David while he wouldn't have been able to enter um, into this holy place but would have seen it moved around he would have seen the ark I believe he saw in these beautiful things not uh, such something to worship but a reflection of who God is of how beautiful God was in his moral perfection And so when he talks about the beauty of the Lord, he's making a value judgment about the Lord. He's saying that the Lord is better than everything else. It is an objective standard of truth and goodness. And therefore, something beautiful is desirable. And David wants this. In later Psalms, it talks about how justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And love and faithfulness go before him. Now, when David saw the ark being moved, and here's an example of it, he would have seen this golden box, and on top of it were these two 
angels or cherubim whose wings came out and touched each other. In the uh, temple that his son Solomon built, not only was this ark with these two angels there, but there was another two cherubim that basically touched the wall end to end in this most holy place of God. So why is all this talk about furniture and gold at all relevant for us? Well, what actually happened in this place where God was felt to most particularly dwell his throne was that a priest would come in, offer a sacrifice once a year for the sins of the people of Israel, and then come out and pronounce that they were now right with God. There had been an atonement made. An animal had been sacrificed. Its blood was brought in. And God accepted that as punishment for the sins that the Israelites did in place of their own deaths. And those sins covered everything from not living the right way, lies, murder, rape, stealing, to other things such as um, not being perfect, not conforming exactly to who God was, not being like God in his beauty. So when David saw these things, he saw a sheltering. And in that shelter, under those wings that that, that Johnny talked about uh, when he was talking about uh, um, uh, Psalm uh, 36, where God's character meets most perfectly. You see, when the priest came in, he almost took shelter under those wings, and God's wrath against sin fell, if you like, on on his footstool, on his throne. And I believe that these um, cherubim weren't sort of depictions of angels that are out there like Gabriel or Michael or whoever, but they were actually, if you like, personifications of God's character. I believe you could have called them righteousness and justice, and the two ones in the temple that Solomon would later build, love and faithfulness. So David sees in this tabernacle a place where God can forgive sins, where his mercy is seen, where God is righteous and just, but where sinners can take refuge. This is why he talks about in verse 5 that God would hide him in the shelter in the day of trouble. He would conceal him under the cover of his tent. And for Christians, the cross is the perfect expression of where people can come to meet God and have their sins forgiven. Johnny talked about last week how God had said to the Israelites he would pass over them. And what he meant was that he didn't just ignore sins or just go, well, I'm not doing anything about that. But that God himself, like a mother hen, would spread his wings and that the angel of death, the destruction that fell on the Israel, the Egyptian firstborn, would fall on him. So God takes the punishment for sin. It's almost that God himself is the judge, the jury, the executioner, and the defendant. And the cross, and we sing about it, where mercy and truth have kissed each other, allows God to save sinners. And this is why David, even though he didn't really understand the cross, knew God wanted people to come into his presence and to desire him and to see his beauty and have their lives changed. Because he then says, he will lift me high upon a rock. And many people are fearful today. They are anxious and upset. They hear about viruses. They hear political changes. They worry about their pension. They worry about their family. They worry about their health. They worry about where the next paycheck is coming. They worry about lots of things. But one of the hopes we have as Christians is that being in God's presence and living our lives in the way that he wants us to gives us security. In fact, it's like a military fortress, a great plain, a rock on which we can stand firm. 
And even though there are armies and wars, there are things that are against us, they will not reach us. We will be protected. Is any wonder then in verse 6 that David's response is to shout for joy, to sing, make melody, and to make sacrifices? You see, the Christian religion is not one of either us trying to work our way to God, as David explained this morning, nor is it one where we have this sort of private experience of God. It's not something where we enjoy the aesthetics of the Bible or church buildings or the liturgy or whatever it may be. It's when we come and we actually understand who God is. And by aligning ourselves to what he is like, to what he has done for us, we are saved. This is what the Bible talks about, salvation. So it's not a retreat away from life. David is not saying, look, I want to become a priest or a minister. David is actually refueling, restocking and re-enabling when he comes into God's presence. And so this comes to choosing what is good and what is best in our lives. I talked about that example the Lord Jesus gave about the flowers of the fields who are so beautiful. And even Solomon was not arrayed like one of these. And our Lord Jesus is giving this an example of, you know, you're anxious about things. Why do you toil and spin? Look at the flowers of the fields. God clothes them more beautifully than other things. And it is essential in our lives that we plan, design, we work, we sort out things, we repair, we do all these things of of daily living. However, if our focus in life is to relieve our anxieties about basic things, if it's to gain more resources or more security in things other than God, then life really does start to become pointless. Because these things, like grass and flowers, will, will pass away. And then when they let us down, anxiety comes. So if you place all of your weight for hope, light, salvation on a relationship, on your number of likes on your social media, on the academic success or on the type of family you raise, that's maybe a good thing, but it will all one day fade and you'll have to have something underneath that that is more substantial. Instead, when we put our first desire to know God and his righteousness to seek his kingdom, what all this stuff is about that we read about in the Bible that we're talking about in church, then all these things begin to take care of themselves. And I wanted to talk part of this to those of us who I suppose have been in the Christian uh, walk for a while. You know, for me, some of my most exciting times as a Christian were was was when I was a teenager, I suppose, like David, maybe not resting off lions, but, you know, defending the faith, seeking to know more about what God was like, about how I was to live. But as you get a bit more established and become a bit more comfortable, um, that desire to know God, to take steps on, to be interested in what he's doing in your life and in the wider world, can somehow dim, and it can dim quite a bit. And I find that whenever I become restless, bored, a bit narky, Whenever I'm not interested in other people, whenever I don't read my Bible the way I should, whenever I forget to pray, this is sometimes a really good barometer of the fact that actually my desires are not aligned with what is most perfect, what is most right. It's a bit like giving somebody a beautiful thing and them asking you, well, why would I want that? Well, you want it because it's beautiful. Many times the Lord comes to us in his word and says, why do you not want to spend time with me and get to know me? get to know what interests me and what I value. You see, Mary and Martha were great examples of how 
people who knew the truth can diverge a little bit. Mary, the sister of Martha, sat at Jesus' feet, learning from him. She wanted to inquire of the Lord. Whereas Martha was doing the appropriate preparations for a meal, for hosting Jesus, and that was perfectly good. But for Martha, her Christian service became an end in itself. And she ended up getting distracted by many small things, and she lost sight that she was doing this for the Lord. Even in Christian service, our efforts really are the prelude, the garnishing, the foreword to better and richer music, food, and stories that the Lord is doing and wants to tell through us. How easy it would have been for King David to rest on his laurels and go, look, I've got lots of military experience, I have lots of resources, yep, there's a rebellion, um, yep, people are trying to seize the throne, but actually I can crush that, I have the ability to do that. And he probably would have succeeded, but it wouldn't have been in faith, it wouldn't have glorified God. We know David, as well as other kings, took shortcuts at time. So the way in which he did that would probably not have been pleasing to the God who had saved him, who was his light. It probably would have not honoured him. And again, people watching on the surrounding nations, people in David's kingdom might have thought, hmm, what is the God like whom David professes to serve? Instead, David first realises that he has to start with God and go to that secret, that intimate place of communion with God where he does real business with him. For him, it was that understanding of God meeting the priest, meeting men at that mercy seat, that covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. For us as Christians, it means thinking, really, what does the cross say about our priorities today? Moving on, verses 7 and 12. David begins to seek again, but it becomes even more earnest. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your way, your servant, in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take this hero Lord that David bursts into is the same kind of here, O Israel, the Lord are one, or God is one. David is directing a command to God, almost a command to say, Lord, be faithful to your promise and covenant and deliver me. Because while I've been gazing at your beauty and while I've been learning of you, I also have an eye to this army, these people that would seek to undermine and destroy me. And ultimately, by extension, the work that you, God, are doing. David is confident, but he's not cocky. He's not presumptuous to think that the Lord will deliver him no matter what. And this is where the psalm might seem to think, well, does David really have confidence here? Well, yes, because David is dealing with different anxieties in this psalm. And there are probably three anxieties that we as Christians face. So there are things that aren't real, anxieties that are maybe theoretical, or things that will melt away if we maybe just change our thinking a wee bit. So that's why David in the first three verses said, well, if the Lord is my light and salvation, lots of other things pale into significance. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? So that's one fear and anxiety. The second anxiety is about real problems, things that actually are happening or that will happen. But yet the Lord strengthens us through these things, through his word, through other Christian believers, to actually deal with them and move on to their conclusion. 
And you know, many of you, far more than me, have so many rich stories of how the Lord has delivered you at those times. But then there's this third type of anxiety where maybe things don't change or they get worse or something so horrible has happened that it probably can't be repaired. I think David was experiencing this third type of anxiety as he moves on in his story of the psalm. His son Absalom rebelled against him. And I think we see a hint of that in verse 10 where David says, well, you know, my mother and my father forsake me. The people that are closest to me have essentially ditched me. Our home group, uh, which many of you or some of you will go to, um, is, is a rich um, fount of stories and examples uh, that I find really personally enriching. And if you do get a chance to get to a home group, uh, please do. Uh, they really put an edge in your spiritual life. And, you know, once every uh, two weeks uh, during term time, it's a great way to get together and to learn from each other. And we were studying John 9 about the man born blind. And essentially this man is brought before the Jewish leaders who try and find a way to undermine the Lord Jesus. And yet when he gives a very simple, quite bold testimony, and they can't get anywhere, they bring in his parents. And his parents essentially throw the man under the bus. They don't defend him. They're not pleased that he's now seeing, much less that he's met the Lord. They basically are scared of being criticized and at risk of being put out of the synagogue. For these parents, I think, ironically, their one desire was to see their son born with sight to be a productive member of Jewish society. They didn't have it for a long time. But when it happens, they don't rejoice in it. Because while it was a good desire, it wasn't the best desire. Their best desire for their son, as any parent can have for their child, is that they would come to know the Lord and to be a follower of him. So when their good desires get trampled on by enemies, literally these Pharisees, this horde, this people who breathe out threats and violence against them, they find it doesn't support the weight of anything. We sometimes say that the perfect is the enemy of the good when we're talking about people who are very perfectionist or uh, need to have every uh, I dotted and T crossed. But when it comes to seeking and knowing the Lord, actually the good can be the enemy of the perfect. So is your one desire as a Christian a singular focus on that place where God's character meets most perfectly, at Calvary, where truth and justice meet, so that the Bible can say, as we learn in Romans, that God is just and the justifier of your faith in Christ? The place where love and faithfulness are extended out to the world. If you go to that place and spend time at that place, that will keep you going. That will give you resilience to face all sorts of of anxieties because the dynamism of these verses in 7 to 12 is known by many persecuted Christians around the world who look and admire God's presence as moral perfection and live wonderful Christian lives yet they're also in terrible danger they meet in secret for fear of being exposed by the authorities for being put in prison or having their goods seized and we must pray for these people we may not physically be able to take them in or support them Um, the Lord will take them up but we need to pray that God will protect such people because there are only some things that the Lord's return to earth can put right only some problems in our lives some issues of abandonment of abuse of grief of bereavement of loss that only the Lord Jesus when he comes again to earth will, will put right finally this psalm ends on a note of of great confidence 
In Psalm 25, a few weeks ago, we saw that waiting on the Lord wasn't just passive inactivity, but it was active service, doing what we're commanded to do, and then seeing how situations resolve in the Lord's time. Now, waiting on the Lord isn't, you know, some sort of decision that we take over years to go left or right, if left and right are both moral, biblically sound and sensible. Take one direction. If it's sensible, go down that way and commit your way to the Lord and he'll direct those paths. But this waiting here moves even beyond that because this is waiting with teeth. This is waiting almost on the edge of your seat. The words that are used in the original Hebrew, so I'm told, are a, 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 a wonderful expectation of what is happening next. The final verse says, Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. I read that. I thought, I know those words. I've seen them somewhere before. And I realized there's a little plaque um, that I was given when I was baptized here uh, in 1996, uh, which is from Joshua uh, 1 verse 9. It says, uh, seeming, be strong and courageous. And be strong and courageous is used 12 times in that exact way in the Old Testament. And on every occasion, it's encouraging people who are mature or maturing, growing believers to move from this part into something fresh and new, something where they develop radically as people of God and where God's fame and name is known. So Moses encouraged Joshua four times, be strong and courageous, leading the Israelites into the promised land. Joshua encourages the people five times to be strong and courageous in order to cross the River Jordan and to enter into what God has promised. David encourages son Solomon to build the temple where God will dwell. And then finally, King Hezekiah, facing a literal army of the Syrians, tells the people, be strong and take courage. These examples are all about moving into what God has promised us so that we grow and that God and his fame are seen and known by others. Some of you actually are going to be doing that soon. You are going to go to other lands. But for many of us, sometimes taking that step is actually yielding to the Lord and saying, Lord, I have this besetting sin in my life. I have this problem that I have maybe tried for years to get over, whether it is anger, whether it is selfishness, whether it's an addiction to something. I can't really seem to get over it. And it keeps pulling me down every so often. And instead of really dealing with it, we kind of just put it under the surface and saying, well, I'm doing all this other stuff for God. That will be enough. And that's not what the Lord wants us to do. He doesn't want us to live these split lives. He wants us to be strong, take the courage, and in faith go and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get over this, but I know that you can help me. The Lord is my light and my salvation opens up this psalm. And David was able to look at what he'd been given as a king, a people of Israel, and these bits of furniture that moved around that spoke about God's goodness. And David saw where the source of that came from. He didn't just see these beautiful things and go, well, I've had it made in uh, in life, but he saw the source that it came from God himself. There was a story, and I'll just take a little bit of time to uh, to read the first part of it, by C.S. Lewis that he wrote, um, and uh, it's called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And I don't know whether you've had uh, many sort of tremendous spiritual ecstatic experiences in your tool shed but c.s lewis did and this is this is what he, he writes he said i was standing today in the dark tool shed the sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam from where i stood that beam of light with the specks of dust floating out was the most striking thing in the place everything else was almost pitch black i was seeing the beam 
not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that he sees a shard of light and it illuminates something great. For David, he saw these blessings and went, fantastic. But what C.S. Lewis urges us to do is actually look along the path of the beam to a much brighter world and to the source. Even if that source seems so far away, 90 million miles away, you see the sun. Come out of that tool shed and see the light of God. See how it illuminates everything and explains what you've been given. We'll be doing a series in a couple months' time about being inspired by creation. And so many people can see the design and beauty of creation as scientists, as engineers, as biologists, as whatever. They see the beam, they see the illumination, they go, wow, that's amazing. But they never trace along that beam back to the source and go, well, if this is what this is like, where must it have come from? What force is creating it? What must they be like? So be honest with yourself if you're not a Christian and you understand and enjoy beautiful things, whatever they may be, are you tracing the beam back to its source of all beauty in God? As Christians, we see in the cross our salvation and the blessings and deliverances God has done for us in our lives, wonderful things. But we keep, as David did, let's go back to the source of that. Let's go back to the fountain, which is the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit? And are we living in that light, illuminating a much wider world in which God is changing our character, changing our church, changing the world, using us in so many different ways? Or are we content to stay in a dusty, dark tool shed and go, yeah, I once had a nice experience. Here's a shard of light that attests to that. No, don't settle for these things. But in your desire for the Lord, take that courage, be strong, and take that next step into whatever he will have you to do.